Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon the generous financial contributions of our listeners in order to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you. Uh, would you please uh, support Fighting for the Faith financially by joining our crew or sending in a donation to uh, support us financially? You can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. Click on the Join Our Crew button. That's a mere $6.95 a month. Or if you'd like to make a flat contribution, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button or making your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and sending it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Friday, March 19th, 2010. It ain't Friday light today. We did Friday light on uh, Wednesday, which means it was Wednesday light back then. Yeah, you know. I have very, very loose definitions of words. So, you know, Friday could mean any day between Monday and Friday. (laughs) Ah, yes. What's the point of having words if they have no meaning? Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro, and I am your servant in Jesus Christ. And this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which is to help you to think biblically to help you to think critically and to compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. Plain and simple, and I am not exempt from this this, uh, tactic, this thing. I'm not exempt from it. In fact, uh, you you get extra uh, pirate Christian radio points uh, that you can redeem for nothing, actually. But you you get extra points if uh, you take the time to carefully compare what I say in the name of God, to the Word of God. Why? Because I'm a sinful human being, and that means that I'm capable of believing and uh, forwarding and proclaiming error, and not just the truth. And so everything I say has to be tested as well as anything anybody else says. So just because I be doing the testing here at Fighting for the Faith doesn't mean uh, that I am inerrant. <laughs> no, I may. I, in fact, I may not properly understand some passages from time to time. So I just want to let you know that I'm not exempt from this uh, this this thing that we do here at Fighting for the Faith. Struggling with words today, apparently. Uh... <laughs> All right, today's edition of Fighting for the Faith. Um, we're going to begin today with a, a news story called A Few Plan to Invite Unchurched to Easter Service. And so we're going to take a look at that. And uh, and then yesterday, if you remember, I answered an email from a gentleman from South Africa by the name of Stefan. And it, it and the answer to the question brought us into uh, the epistle, 1 John uh, chapter 1 and uh, you know, portions of it uh, throughout. And, uh, and one of the things I said I would, wanted to do was uh, bring in a different document uh, something for us to consider. And so what I'm going to be doing today is walking you through a document that was put together by a gentleman, uh, you know, a, 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 a pastor who's gone to be with the Lord, and his name was uh, Pastor Ken Corby. And uh, Ken Corby had a profound influence on me early on, uh, you know, after I 
uh, transitioned from legalistic uh, American evangelical pietism into uh, uh, being a confessional Lutheran. And he has this document that he put together uh, many years ago entitled Self-Examination and Reflection, The Ten Commandments Preach Repentance, That Is By Them, God shows us our sin and how much we need a savior. And uh, this is uh, if you ever if you're getting to the point in your Christian walk where you feel like, "Hey, I'm pulling it off. I'm I'm really really getting holy." Um may I recommend uh, you avail yourself of this document <laughs> uh because <laughs> It uh, hold if you really want to know what it's like to examine your life in light of the Ten Commandments and realize just how sinful you are. Uh, this document does a pretty d- darn good job of uh, cracking that open, and so we'll, we'll spend some time on that today. And uh, and then there's a gentleman by the name of Aaron Gardner, and uh, he's here in Central Indiana, and uh, he has a, a a blog that he puts that he put that he authors called a Great Work. And he recently wrote uh, a critique of uh, of a chapter in Tim Stevens's book, Pop Goes the Church. Now, we've talked a little bit about this book. Probably more, I need to talk about it more. And so I'm going to use uh, Aaron Gardner's uh, blog post as a... You know, as an opportunity to talk a little bit about some of Tim Stevens. And Tim Stevens, by the way, is one of the guys who's the, one of the leaders at um, at Granger Community Church. And I think that it, you know, we'll spend some time taking a look at uh, what he's written and then also uh, chime in and give you some of Aaron Gardner's, uh, what I consider to be good, lucid, apologetic, biblical responses to some of the claims in uh, Tim Stevens' book. And then, let's see here. I got to see if we're going to have time for this other stuff. <sighs> we, <laughs> let's take a look at some of the other potential stuff that we could get to if time permits. A New Zealand woman sells souls to the highest bidder. Apparently, there's a woman in New Zealand who's been selling. She claims that she um, uh, captured some really nasty spirit ghosts and has put the, has suspended them in holy water in New Zealand, and she's been selling them on uh, eBay. We might talk about that today. And um, let's see here. New Life pastor asks Christian to, uh, Christians to embrace speaking in tongues. I don't know if we'll get to that, but... If we do, we might get. If we don't, we'll, we'll get to it next week. And uh, and then there's a, another story I want to get to next week. Um, a, a blog by the name of the Reality Zone, a uh, real Reality Zone, and uh, a gal who uh, used to be uh, used to practice mysticism. Dawn, uh, she has a blog post called "Why I Used to Be a Mystic and Why I'm Not One Now." And uh, and if I don't get to this today, I will get to this next week. So just you know. As you can see here, uh, my <clears throat> how do I put it? My stack, my uh, my pile of things, uh, stories that I could be talking about, uh, continues to grow uh, rather substantially. And as a result of it, yeah, I can't even get to any. I, I, it's gotten to the point where um, the category category five heresy hurricane that we're experiencing right now, uh, heresy hurricane. What did I say? Heresy hurricane. Oh, what did I say? Ah, oh, Rosebro. The mouth is uh, not connected fully to the brain today. Not sure what the deal is. It's heresy hurricane. The uh, Category 5 heresy hurricane that we're experiencing right now. I can't keep up anymore. It's. I feel like I'm doing heresy triage. And uh, and so I, I, I got to selectively pick the stories that I want to talk about and then, you know, and work from there. And I'm trying to work out a uh, what I would consider to be a, a an in-depth critique 
of uh, the spiritual formation movement uh, vis-a-vis Dallas Willard, Richard Foster, and now John Ortberg, who has uh, gotten into uh, that <clears throat> brand of whatever. I don't even know what to call it. I, I just I don't really think it's helpful whatsoever. And so uh, still doing research on that, and there's some things that I want to bring to the program. Maybe next week, maybe the following week. I don't know. I'm working on it. Anyway. <sighs> okay, Rosebro, you're losing your mind. See, this is what happens. If I do Friday light on Wednesday, I get to Friday and my brain is completely fried. It's like, you know, the synapses aren't connecting. I, yeah, whatever. <sighs> All right, let's move along into the program proper. Uh, from the Christian Post, the headline reads, Few plan to invite unchurched to Easter service. Oh no, gasp. The church will never grow. <clears throat> By the way, this yeah, you'll see that I'm going to use this to gratuitously plug something that I did last year, that we will be resuscitating, resurrecting... <laughs> This Easter here at Fighting for the Faith. Um, This was written by Jennifer Riley. Uh, The story reads, Less than half of American churchgoers plan to invite unchurched people to Easter worship service this year, a new survey found. Now, immediately I just asked the question. Um, Okay, um, and this is bad because... Okay, I'm, I'm asking the question. You know, is there a mandate in Scripture that we have to invite unchurched people to our Easter services? Okay. Um, I mean, I think there's nothing wrong if you want to invite somebody who's an unbeliever to a Christian Easter service. I don't think there's any problem with that at all. But I don't think it's this is a bellwether of anything. Um, and the reason why I say that is because um, one of the things I've learned over the years is uh, – yeah, uh, the, the way things are going in the Christian church, your unchurched and pagan friends may be better served by you not inviting them to a church or dissuading them uh, from attending a seeker-driven church. And <laughs> why? Because there's all kinds of nonsense that goes on uh, on Easter uh, Sunday. And by the way, this is a good time to announce that this will be uh, this year. We are going to resurrect. <laughs> Notice the pun. Uh, we're going to resurrect something that we did last year, and that is is that we had a contest. Worst Easter sermon of 2009. We're going to recreate the contest, and we're going to have a contest following Easter. Hopefully, the week after, or maybe the the second week after. It depends on on uh, how quickly I can get the uh, the sermon you know sermon contestants uh, sermon entries into uh, the hopper. Uh, but the idea here is, is that what we're going to do is we're going to have a contest and uh, we'll play five days in a row. I kid you not. That means that there won't be a Friday light on that. Uh, well, we, we could do the sermon contest for Friday light. But it, yeah, but the thing is, we're going to have yeah, hold on to your hats. We're going to have five bad sermons in a row. And then it'll be up to you at the end of the week to vote on which of the five sermons was the worst Easter sermon of 2010. And why? Why am I doing this? Because far too many pastors um, have taken East, the, the, the Easter to preach about anything but Christ's death and resurrection for our sins. I mean, don't you think 
out of any day that pastors should preach the cross and Christ's resurrection and what he's done for us, it would be Easter. I mean, that's the big celebration, right? Christ's resurrection from the dead. Well, believe me when I tell you, you know, and you'll see for yourself, if you, if you didn't experience this last year, you will, you're, I guarantee you, your jaws will be on the floor. Uh, when you hear just how bad the preaching, uh, you know, is around the country and the world on Easter Sunday when it comes to, you know, our high holy day, if you would. And so, uh, I, you know, I'm reading this and basically you know, saying right off the bat, you know, your pagan friends may actually, uh, you may be doing them a service by not inviting them to church on Easter, depending on what your church does. Uh, but let me continue reading the story here. It says, uh, only one out of three active churchgoers, or 31%, said they would definitely invite someone uh, they know who does not usually attend church to join them for Easter service, according to a Barna Group survey that examines Americans' views on Easter. The survey also found that a solid majority of Americans would describe Easter as a religious celebration. Only a minority, 42%, connected Easter with the Christian belief in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. <laughs> Oh, good night. Only 42% of Americans connected Easter with the Christian belief in the resurrection of Jesus. And I want, you know, see, that's the thing. I, I think that that's probably 42% of people in churches, too, haven't figured out that Easter has something to do with Jesus' resurrection from the dead. David Kinneman, president of the Barna Group and the one who directed the project, said he thinks the most troubling survey finding uh, from a church leader's perspective is that most who do not know the meaning of Easter are not particularly inclined to invite unchurched friends to worship. By the way, I hate that word, unchurched. I mean, if you turn church into a verb, I'm going to church you. <laughs> it sounds painful. I don't want to be churched. Ooh, I mean, seriously. I mean, I might need to, you know, get a football helmet and some pads or something like that. I don't want to get churched. And my, my pagan friends... It's not that they're suffering from the of lack of being churched. It's that they don't trust in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. And as a result of it, I'm not interested in churching them. I'm interested in proclaiming repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name to them so that God would grant them repentance and grant them faith and forgive their sins and that they would be regenerated. And at that point, they, it, they're no longer, quote, unchurched. They're, they are members of the church. Again, the, the language used nowadays by the Druckerites, and by the way, Barna is uh, is one of the you know important uh, wings or organizations that's integral to the whole Druckerite community. Um, let's see here. Okay, um, so it suggests that quote their personal beliefs about Jesus have not yet translated into a sense of urgency for having spiritual conversations with their acquaintances. You know, uh, Dave, I gotta disagree. I don't think this is a bellwether of that at all. And again, like I've like, if, if you don't believe me, hang out. You know, we'll, you'll see what I'm talking about here. You, your your pagan friends would be better served not, you know, if you can dissuade them from attending some of these seeker driven churches, especially the Druckerite ones. That said, some American adults indicated the, uh, great confusion about the meaning of Easter. Some believe that Easter is about the celebration of spring or a pagan holiday, three uh, percent, the birth of Christ, two percent, the rebirth of Christ, two percent, and or the celebration of the second coming. One percent. Evangelicals were by far the most uh, likely faith segment measured by the survey to identify the resurrection of Jesus uh, as part of the of Easter. Seventy three percent. 
Hey, at least we got 73% of the people understanding that, you know, they claim to be Christians understanding, yeah, Easter, it's about Jesus' resurrection. Protestants were also more more than likely than Catholics to connect the resurrection of Jesus to the Christian holiday. By age groups, adults in the boomer generation, ages 45 to 63, were the most likely to describe Easter in general as a religious holiday. Meanwhile, the youngest generation, the Mosaics, ages 18 to 25, were the least likely to say Easter is a religious holiday. Yeah, again, I don't think that particular survey was even helpful at all. Oh, I forgot to mention, uh, today's sermon review, <laughs> uh, it's it's kind of a trip down memory lane, if you would. Uh, kind of like looking back at Doug Paget's old uh, yearbook from high school or college. Uh, we've got a sermon that uh, he uh, preached in um, in the 90s sometime when he actually still believed the Christian faith. And uh, you're going to hear Doug Paget deliver what I consider to be a decent, a, a good sermon. Uh, yeah, you're going to hear about Christ's death on the cross for your sins. You're going to hear some pretty de- good stuff. It's just kind of interesting. It kind of shows us how far, uh, how far Paget has wandered um, regarding sound biblical doctrine. All right, moving along here. Okay, this one, this this little segment's going to take a few minutes. Okay. Uh, many times I've referenced you know, examining your life in light of the Ten Commandments. Now, keep in mind, proper understanding of law and gospel is this, is that the law does not, cannot, will not ever save us, okay? But God's law is good, and if it's especially good if you use it lawfully, if you use it correctly. And one of the correct uses of God's law is to examine your life in light of it so that it shows and exposes your sin and shows you your need for a savior. Okay. Uh, kind of working, you know, from the principle, he who is forgiven much loves much. Yeah. Um, if you think you're actually doing okay in as far as keeping God's law, uh, chances are, chances are, uh, pretty good that you, um, you don't really understand what it is that God's law is is uh, demanding of you and therefore it's it's very good right and salutary to examine your life in light of the ten commandments okay now the other thing the law does is it shows us what a good work is now this is that's called the third use of the law and that only 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 did i mention that only applies to believers okay um anyway a while ago pastor ken corby when uh when he was he's now sainted uh, when he uh, was alive, he put together a document that uh, somebody sent to me a long time ago, and uh, I found this to be rather helpful in um, destroying uh, any and all pretenses to me having any righteousness of my own. And I'm going to post this document, by the way, in the Pirate Cove, and uh, it'll it'll be a PDF document there that you can uh, you can view on, in the Pirate Cove as well as download. And the name of it is Self-Examination and Reflection, and the subtitle is The Ten Commandments Preach Repentance, that is, by them God shows us our sin and how much we need a Savior. Now, what I'm going to do is I'm going to read this, and what you'll notice is, is that the uh, the outline structure of this particular document follows Luther's discussion of the small of the Ten Commandments from his small catechism. And, um, and what uh, Ken Corby does is he... Um, asks questions as it pertains to each of the commandments to kind of get to the nub of uh, how you doing on this. And uh, keep in mind, uh, when this is all done, I'm going to preach the gospel to you because you're going to need it. Okay, I'll need it. 
<laughs> I'll preach it to myself and to you because we're gonna we're gonna all need it. So hang on to your hats. You might want to put a helmet on, put some knee pads on, a uh, flame you know, flame retardant suit, anything because this is going to uh, in a very direct way. Um, Strip you of all of your self-righteousness. Anyway, so here we go. The first commandment, you shall have no other gods. Luther's small catechism asks the question, what does this mean? Answer, we should fear, love, and trust in God above all things. Um, now, Corby writes, he says, my God is that which I love, trust, and fear most of my, uh, fear for most of my life. I expect my comfort and good and delight to come from God. I think that's actually in the commentary on the, uh, on the, uh, catechism, but we continue. So what does it mean to really Say, you shall have no other gods. Well, let's ask a question. Uh, do you look to God, your heavenly Father, for all love, good, and joy? Is everything measured for you by what pleases you? If so, you are suffering from something. You have another God. In all things, are you, are you, are you self-centered and selfish? Do you see your worry and fretting as sin against God? Do you complain about the troubles uh, people work and suffering God lays on you? Do you love the things God gives you more than you love him? Do you cling to what God takes away even though he gives you himself? You know, think about all that. I mean, if you you know if you answer, you're answering any of these questions in the affirmative, then you have another God besides God. Second commandment: You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. What does this mean? We should fear, love, and love God that we may not curse, swear, use witchcraft, or lie or deceive by God's name, but call upon it in every trouble, pray, praise, and give thanks. So here's the question: Do you curse? Have you cursed? Do you use God's name cheaply for oaths that are frivolous or false? Do you stand up and swear by God's name and when it is for the truth of the gospel or for the benefit of my neighbor in need? Do you pray with fervor in times of trouble? Are you bored or indifferent when you pray? Is it so that you cannot speak about God truly because you're bored with God's word, neglecting the study of doctrine in God's word? Is your heart and life in the praise of God and worship? Are you mouthing things while your heart is far away from God? Is your life marked with the name of God in baptism and characterized by thanksgiving and praise? You see, because, um, you know, if you're, if you're having problems answering these questions in such a way that you're not standing up righteously, well, then you're sinning. How about the third commandment? You shall sanctify the holy day. Remember the Sabbath day, keep it holy. What does this mean? It means that we should fear and love God, that we may not despise preaching in his word, but hold it sacred and gladly hear and learn it. So do you strive to make the day of rest holy? Do you care about holy living? Do you use the word of God in prayer to make your time, work, and study life a holy day today? Are you lazy and bored with God's word? Have you any fear of God over this neglect? Do you honor the word of God highly by studying it gladly, learning it by heart, and living it? Are you quick to make excuses for neglecting worship because of 
what someone else has said or done or to do other things I, you like more? Do you spend time complaining about the worship or the people or the pastor? Do you learn the word gladly so that you can teach others? How about the fourth commandment? You shall honor your father and mother that it may be well with you and that you may live long on the earth. What does this mean? It means that we should fear and love God, that we may not despise nor anger our parents and masters, but give them honor, serve, obey, and hold them in love and esteem. Now, has the fear and love of God shaped your honor and obedience to parents as well as to other authorities in your life? Have you trusted God to bless you and to make your life good uh, when you submit to the authority of parents and those over you? Or have you been angry with them, rebelling against them, fighting against them because you were afraid or you were not getting what you had, you felt that you had a right to get? Have you been insolent, sullen, and disrespectful to your parents, teachers, employers, or other authorities over you? Have you been on good behavior when they are present and mocking them when they are absent? Have you given honor and respect to the pastoral office? Have you helped those who carry responsibilities in governing? Do you pray for your parents and your leaders of the nations or your leaders in schools and in church? Do you grumble about the work given uh, to you to do? Have you helped make it easier for those who carry responsibilities, uh, especially those who are governing or in authority over you? Well, the fifth commandment, you shall not kill. Now, what does this mean? It means that we should fear and love God that we may not hurt or harm our neighbor in his body, but help and befriend him in every bodily need. Have you treated your neighbor's body and life as gifts of God to him? Have you injured your neighbor by violent actions or hitting and beating on your neighbor, uh, spoken debashing, insulting words or foul or dirty words to describe your neighbor, or murdered him with thoughts of anger, contempt, and hatred? Have you injured your neighbor by ridicule, by neglecting to feed and clothe him without compassion and comfort from him? Have you avoided giving help to your neighbor, avoiding involvement with him in his difficulty? Do you abuse your own body with neglect of health? Care, excess use of food or tobacco or drink or drugs. Not not the use of them, but the excess use. All right. You shall not commit adultery. Well, what does this mean? That we should fear and love God, that we may lead a chaste and decent life in words and deeds and, and each love and honor his spouse. Have you used for your own pleasure your ears to hear stories or your eyes to incite cravings for the body of one who is not your spouse? Or your mouth to speak such words and stories? Have you indulged your eyes with longing for uh, your sexual satisfaction from a man or woman who is not your spouse? Have you dishonored marriage by ridicule, divorce, or neglecting to encourage others to be faithful to their spouses in the fear of God? Have you had intercourse with a man or woman who is not your spouse? Have you dishonored your spouse by neglecting to care for the body, mind, feelings, need of the other, withdrawing faithfulness from your spouse? Have you failed to trust God to bless you in your marriage, even in times of trouble? Have you neglected to pray for your spouse or to worship together and to live in fear and love of God in times of sexual temptation? 
have you practiced thoughts, words, or deeds or given support of homosexual activity? Next commandment. You shall not steal. Well, what does this mean? We should fear and love God that we may not take our neighbor's money or property or get them by false wear or dealing, but help to improve and protect his property and business. Have you been lazy at work, doing poor work in school or at the job, or working hard only when your teacher or boss is around? Have you been stingy in paying your workers? Have you been greedy, demanding best pay for poor work? Have you worked for yourself rather than for Christ and for the benefit of your neighbor or boss or company? Have you cared for the property in the neighborhood, school, or church so that it was improved? Have you stolen from the office or the school or church or stood silently by while others took what was not theirs? Have you stolen information from another's work? Have you wasted time and food and money or caused others to waste time, food, and money uh, by your neglect? Have you been stingy when it comes to giving the Lord a generous portion as as a thank offering for what he has given you? Have you stolen from your neighbor by not helping him in time of need? Next question. Next commandment. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. We should. What does this mean? It means that we should fear and love God, that we may not deceitfully belie, betray, slander, or defame our neighbor, but defend him, think and speak well of him, and put the best construction on things. Have you told the truth in court or in school before authorities or before my pa- or your parents when you knew the truth? Have you been afraid to bear witness when you knew the truth and it was necessary to speak up against a wrongdoer? Or to speak for a victim, have you gossiped, delighted to tell others about the faults or mistakes of another, excusing yourself, especially by saying that I spoke only the truth? Have I gone to others to make peace if I wrong them, or they me, or to correct them if I knew of their wrong? Have you flattered others or put on a front to make them think of you differently from what is true? Have you slanted stories to your benefit or deceived others by withholding some evidence of the story? Have you found ways gladly and willingly to explain in the best possible way those words or actions of others that hurt you? Have you slanted stories to your benefit or deceived others by withholding some evidence of the story? Have you found ways gladly and willingly to explain in the best possible way those words or actions of others that hurt you? Have you defended your neighbor when things said about your neighbor have made others think badly about him or her? Have you learned to bear with the weakness and faults of others, covering their shame? Have you been faithful in keeping the secrets of another's heart entrusted to you in confidence? How about this one? You shall not covet your neighbor's house. Well, what does this mean? It means that we should fear and love God, that we may not craftily seek to get our neighbor's inheritance or house or obtain it by a show of justice and right, etc., but help and be of service to him in keeping it. Have you longed for the honor, wealth, happy life, or what seemed the ease of the lives of others? Has your life been full of cravings for these things? Have you been stingy and self-indulgent with your money, trying to keep up with what others have? Have you tried by claims of various rights to make the property of others your own, saying that they do not really deserve it and I do? Do you have to keep wishing for and dreaming about things you do not have 
before you can work with a diligent and glad heart? Have you lived in grudging discontent with whatever God has given you? Restless about what you do not have and neglectful and thank, uh, of thankful generosity with what you do have? Last commandment. You shall not cover your neighbor's wife, nor his maid, manservant, nor his maidservant, nor his cattle, nor anything that is his. What does this mean? That we should fear and love God, that we may not estrange, force, or entice away our neighbor's wife, servants, or cattle, but urge them to stay and diligently do your, their duty. Have you wanted your neighbor's spouse, his workers, or his property to be yours? Have you tried to win the affections and loyalties of your neighbor's spouse or children or friends away from your neighbor to you? Have you urged friends and spouses and workers to go back to their calling, holding their marriages, friendships, and families, and work together? What does God say of all these commandments? I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate me, and showing mercy unto thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments. What does this mean? Well, God threatens to punish all that transgress these commandments. Therefore, we should dread his wrath and not act contrary to these commandments. But he promises grace and every blessing to all that keep these commandments. Therefore, we should also love and trust in him and gladly do according to his commandments. God demands our hearts and minds, not merely our outward actions. Therefore, examine the heart as well as the life, connecting the fear and love of God with each commandment. Let the broken heart fear him. God loves and does not despise the sacrifices of the broken heart. Rather, he joins broken, uh, his, he joins broken heart to his mercy for forgiveness and healing for peace and purity. So in light of those passages, if you have been found out to be a sinner, I have. Here's a good prayer. Most merciful God. We confess that we are by nature sinful and we're unclean. We have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left done. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We justly deserve your present and eternal punishment. And for the sake of your son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us. Forgive us, renew us, and lead us so that we may walk in your will and delight in your ways to the glory of your holy name. Amen. You see, the Ten Commandments, when you really, truly examine your lives in light of them, you find you you really are not doing as good as you think. So don't trust in and hold up your self-righteousness and what you think is you're pulling off of the law as the most important thing. Because Christ said, blessed are the poor in spirit those who realize they're spiritual beggars, bankrupt, if you would. But theirs is the kingdom of heaven. When you examine your life in light of God's law, the thing that it does is it strips you of your self-righteousness and shows you your utter and complete wretchedness before a holy and just God. The good news is that Christ died for all of your sins and he has called you out of darkness into light. He has called you through the good news of the gospel and the forgiveness of sins won by Jesus Christ on the cross out of bondage to sin 
out of bondage to the devil and to death and to self-righteousness and the self-deception and other things. To repent, ultimately that's a change of mind. And what are you changing your mind about? You're not a good person. You are a sinner in need of a Savior. And you have that Savior in Jesus Christ. He truly died for all of your sins. And he forgives you. What does the scripture say? If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But God who is faithful and just will forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The Christian life is one lived out under the cross, in the blood of Christ, in the forgiveness of sins, in daily repentance, and we don't do good works to earn brownie points with God. Instead, we are set free from the law so that we can love and serve our neighbor. We're set free to do good works, not because we need them for our salvation. They, They don't add a thing to it. Not because God needs them. He doesn't need anything. But our neighbor does need them. And so in Christ, we are set free from our sin. We are set free from the guilt of our sin. And we're set free to love our neighbor and serve him. And ultimately, ultimately, the goal of all of this is is our very salvation. So in this life, we love In this life, we endure hardship and suffering. In this life, we trust and have faith. And then when time is consummated at the return of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, we'll see Christ face to face. There will be no more sin, death, and the devil. And there will be no suffering to endure and suffer under. That is our hope and our salvation. All right, I thought that would be useful. All right, we're long past our time for our first break. We'll take our first break, and uh, when we come back, we're going to take a look at this uh, pop. Excuse me, pop goes the church uh, rebuttal uh, by Aaron Gardner uh, from his blog site, uh, which is called A Great Work. I'll give you the uh, the link when we get back from our first break. Now, if you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith. You can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. We'll be right back. God doesn't need your good works. Your neighbor needs them. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> If your church's praise band plays songs that worship you rather than God. Sing, 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 
church. If your church's praise band plays songs that worship you rather than God and your pastor always preaches the law but never the gospel. You see, it takes more than belief. It takes more than faith to really please God. Then you might need a new church. If your church's praise band plays songs that worship you rather than God, your pastor always preaches the law but never the gospel, and your pastor cares nothing about you personally. We have people come to this church going, I want a church where I can know the pastor. I could never go to a church where I can know the pastor. You need to leave. I don't have time. I love my wife, I love my kids, and I will not sacrifice my, my family on the ministry altar so I can come eat food that I don't like and hang out with people that make me uncomfortable. And then you might need a new church. If your church's praise band plays songs that worship you rather than God, your pastor always preaches the law but never the gospel, your pastor cares nothing about you personally, and Jesus and the Bible only make cameo appearances during the sermon. I heard a story about a farmer that had an old mule that had fallen into an empty well. It was about 40 or 50 feet deep, and the farmer was so disappointed. He really loved this old mule. Then you definitely need to find a real church. This has been a public service announcement from Pirate Christian Radio. The spring and summer travel seasons are just around the corner. And the last thing you want to do is pay more for your airfare, hotel, and rental car than you need to. That's why Pirate Christian Radio is proud to have Cheapo Air as one of our featured advertisers. Cheapo Air has over 18 million flight deals, low airfare guarantees, and 85,000 negotiated hotel rates around the globe. And if you visit our website piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. We have a promo code that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. So visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Write down the promo code, click on the web banner, and book your spring or summer travel today. And remember, a portion of your purchase at Cheapo Air will go to support Pirate Christian Radio. That web address again is piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Thank you for your support. self-righteousness destroyed daily here at Fighting for the Faith. By the way, that's a good thing, not a bad thing. All right, need to remind you all, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means that uh, we depend upon your generous financial partnering with us in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you. You can partner with us financially by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. And when you arrive there, you will see on the homepage two friendly yellow buttons. One of them says, join our crew. The other says, uh, donate. Okay. And uh, when you join our crew, it's a mere $6.95 a month. It's hardly anything at all. But it means the world to us because once we get to a 1,000 listeners, that will guarantee that on a monthly basis, we can pay all of our bills. That's an exciting thing to be able to do. (laughs) 
I I think you all like be able to do to do that. We want to be able to do that too. And so uh, that, that's uh, that's our goal is a thousand listeners. We're just just a little bit less than sixty percent of the way there. We're almost there to to sixty percent, uh, which means we still need about four hundred more of our listeners to join our crew. And when you join, you get access to our pirate cove. Pay close attention to the screens because at the last sign-in screen, there's a button that says "Click here to uh, access our pirate cove." which is a growing treasure trove of theological resources designed to help you grow deeper in God's Word, Christ-centered theology, doctrine, and apologetics. Good stuff there. And I'm working on the next batch of uh, releases for our cove. And, of course, if you'd like to uh, fill in the blank as to how much you would like to uh, send in as a gift to Fighting for the Faith, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box 508 Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Okay, uh, let me set this next piece up. Tim Stevens, in his book, Pop Goes the Church, um, has a section in uh, his book at the tail end of chapter 7 and the beginning of chapter 8, he actually makes the case for scratching itching ears. I am, yeah, I'm not kidding. Absolutely true. And a gentleman by the name of Aaron Gardner, um, he is. Uh, he has a blog entitled "A Great Work." Hang on, let's see if I can find the uh, web address for Aaron Gardner's blog. Hang on one second here. His blog is at lunchboxsw.wordpress.com. That's lunchboxsw.wordpress.com. And uh, he uh, he's on Twitter, and he goes by the name Lunchbox. Which is kind of different, I got, I got to say. Um, but anyway, Aaron Gardner has, does a pretty decent job of uh, taking to task some of the things that uh, that uh, Tim Stevens teaches and claims in his uh, book, Pop Goes to Church, as it pertains to Chapter 8. But before I read his rebuttal, I think it's important that uh, you understand what it is that Tim Stevens is arguing. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to read a few pages from Tim Stevens' book, Pop Goes to the Church, uh, by the way, forward by Ed Young. Interesting. Um, <clears throat> let me read here. Okay. Uh, page 117, chapter 7, by the way. Um, here's what uh, Tim Stevens says. He says, uh, here's the bottom line. People have needs. Translated, they itch. If you can help meet those needs, translated, scratch the itch, you will gain an audience who will be open to the rest of the truth of Scripture. And so basically, this is an argument in favor. The entire book is an argument in favor for basically hijacking uh, pop culture and uh, pop culture ideas and basically doing seeker-driven church. Okay? Uh, we'll, we'll talk about what some of the problems along the way here uh, also when we get to uh, Aaron Gardner's uh, rebuttal. But let, let me set, set this up to the contest. So uh, Tim says, this is not Jesus' light. Let me explain. I'm not talking about watering down the gospel. Here is what I know. If you want to reach the unconvinced, those who have not made a commitment to follow Christ, then you need to get their attention. Okay. Did you notice the problem with that sentence? Let me explain. I'm not talking about watering down the gospel. Here's what I know. If you want to reach the unconvinced, those who have not made a commitment to follow Christ, then you need to get their attention. He doesn't understand the biblical gospel. He's a Pelagian. 
So he's sitting there saying he's he's not talking about watering down the gospel, and yet he doesn't understand that people are dead in trespasses and sins. He doesn't get that. He thinks that there, we're, we're, we're dealing with people who are outside of the church. We're dealing with people who are unconvinced. No, we're not dealing with people who are unconvinced. We're dealing people with people who are dead in trespasses and sins. They're unregenerate, rebellious God-haters by nature. We're not dealing with people who are unconvinced. They're convinced, all right. They're convinced that they hate God and don't want to have nothing to do with them by nature. So he's already watering down the gospel. But let me continue, and you'll see what I'm saying. Okay, it says, so if you want to reach the unconvinced, those who have not made a commitment to follow Christ, then you need to get their attention. When people don't know God and they aren't convinced that their lives are all that bad without God, the only way to attract them is to offer them something they need. You you get their attention by identifying an itch they have and then scratching it. That's not necessarily how you keep them, but it's often how you get them. So the whole idea behind seeker-drivenism well, here in his book, Tim Stevens makes it clear. These guys are intentionally trying to scratch itching ears. Plain and simple. Despite what God's word says about it. Okay, I think that's kind of interesting. Okay, let me move over to page 119. I'll continue. A woman has, uh, he gives examples of people who have needs. He says, uh, a couple with small children has been f- uh, funding their lifestyle with credit cards for years now. He just lost his job, and she is putting in, ex- in extra hours to try to make up. However, the interest payments alone are killing them. Is the- It is stressing their marriage, and they are taking their anger out on their kids. They are just about to lose their house and both cars, and they have no idea where to go, uh, w- w- where where they will go if that happens. A woman has been yelled at, beaten up, and sexually abused. Her entire life, men only want her for one thing. Once they get it, they discard her like an old newspaper. She accepted a new job working for a Christian, while she was so excited uh, that, that which she was so excited about. But now, even that guy is starting to hit on her. Her hatred for God is growing exponentially by the day. That's right. There are men and women and teenagers and children and elderly in your community that have problems right in front of their uh, in front of their eyes problems that are so big they can't see anything else they have screwed up or been hurt by others they have gone through a huge crisis such as a loss of a child or a lifelong mate they are plodding through life with little or no purpose oh no gasp they are dealing uh, with the consequences of their own regretful choices or the damaging mistakes of others for them you have to help meet those needs first and so you scratch them where they itch. You identify people's need, identify people's needs and let them know that you have some answers that they should consider. You are still teaching the Bible. You are just initially choosing to teach the portions of the Bible that address the in front of their face needs of the people in your community. And you don't, don't, and you don't just teach truths or quote Bible verses, but you come alongside beside them and show them the love of Jesus. You see, if you don't offer something people need, they won't come. And if the people don't come, you can't teach them the truth. So an effective church is busy identifying people's needs and letting the community know that you have some help that they should consider. If you speak their language, there is a better chance they will come to a service. If they do that, the odds increase significantly that they will hear how much they matter to God, and they just might respond. Notice you're trying to convince them to respond. 
So if the church of Jesus Christ can offer the world help in dealing with these real needs, we can see the world change. If we can scratch them where they itch, then after they accept Christ and begin to grow in their faith, we can teach principles they don't even know they need yet, such as memorizing scripture, becoming systematic in their giving, and learning how to pray. It really sounds to me like Tim Stevens doesn't even know what the gospel is. Anyway, sound like heresy? Yeah, it does. I will admit I'm not a theologian, but I think I have a good scriptural backing for this methodology. Read on. Now, here's the problem. Okay. Keep in mind, when, when, you're, when you're engaging in discernment, sometimes the person who is error is not 100% in error. They, they, they may actually be 90% correct in their views, but they have a misapplication. See, the thing is, is that Christians are, let's just, if we use Ephesians chapter 2, 8, and 9, and 10 as, as our reference point, Christians are called to do good works. Okay? So, you know, what does it say? We are saved by grace through faith. It's not of ourselves. It's a gift of God so that no one may boast. For we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for or to do good works. Okay? So I would agree with Tim Stevens that, um, that in many ways, okay, these things I, that he's identified, people who are hurting, uh, you know, with their finances or women who are being abused sexually or people who are kind of, you know, at their wits end with uh, how to deal with their disobedient, rebellious teenagers, that those are real needs that people have. Okay. That being the case, I absolutely think it behooves Christians to love and serve their neighbors and help them in these times of need. Okay. That does not mean, however, that I think you should change a church service so that the church service focuses on giving life tips and principles to help people overcome their challenges in life. That's where I draw the line. Okay, When the church gathers, it is a gathering of believers for the task of discipling, hearing God's word, praying, and receiving the Lord's Supper. And fellowship. That doesn't change. And so what happens is, is that these seeker-driven churches, oh, listen, we're not going to feed Christians. We're not going to do church for Christians. We're going to scratch itching ears. Here you have Tim Stevens, who attends the, you know, he's on staff at the sixth most influential uh, mega church in the United States of America, openly saying he's purposely trying to scratch itching ears. In church... That's a problem. Anyway, continuing on, chapter 8, I'm not a theologian, but Tim Stevens writes, he says, right about now I can hear some of you saying, okay, Tim, slow down. I was tracking with you to that point, but now you are saying that we should scratch people where they itch. Have you totally lost your mind? Don't you read the Bible? Are you familiar with Paul's letter to uh, Timothy? I have been asked this this very question many times. Then, in case I don't have a Bible, the verse is quoted to me. Preach the word, be prepared in season and out of season, correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. For the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine, but instead will suit their own desires and will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. In other words, Tim Stevens is basically making an argument that we need to scratch itching ears when the Apostle Paul has clearly said that this is not a good thing and that this is a time coming. Okay, 
But he's not a theologian, he says, but he's, he's, he's had theologians review his book to, you know, make sure that he's right on. <clears throat> anyway, a few years ago, Granger, we leveraged the first Spider-Man movie uh, to teach about making good choices, sacrificing for what you believe in, and living with purpose. None of which are, are <laughs> making good choices, law, sacrificing for what you believe in, law, living with purpose. What is that? Okay, so he says that they're not sacrificing the message, but they clearly have. I'm sorry, but living with purpose? Seriously? Anyway, he cites that as uh, you know, example of something that they did, and they got some flack from a local pastor, you know, who basically said, "Yep, they've uh, chucked the the biblical God." Um, so he asked the question: Is there any biblical basis for what we are doing? Is he right in saying that the love of God is not in you if you choose to leverage the culture to make a difference in your community? Actually. Christ, Tim, uh, Tim Stevens, uh, I, I'm talking to you. Uh, Jesus has not called us to, quote, make a difference in our community. That's ridiculous. Hitler made a difference. Just want to make that clear. In fact, he was uh, Time Magazine's Man of the Year sometime in the uh, mid to later part of the 1930s. Because when he came to power, I mean, he kind of cleaned things up there in Berlin. He made a difference. He got the trains running on time. People were pretty happy with some of the changes that Hitler made early on. He says, I think that those are great questions with which to wrestle. What does the Bible really say? Before we start, you should know something about me. I'm not a trained theologian. Yeah, I knew that. It's easy to say. I can't read Greek. Figured that out, too. I don't know Hebrew. Mm -hmm. However, I think I'm in good company because it is my guess that the same is true of many of you. Oh, this is silly. Uh, so if this so this chapter might be helpful to you as I provide some bottom shelf principles from the Bible that gives a basis for engaging and leveraging the culture through the local church. OK, um, if you're a trained theologian, it might help you to know that I've had more than 50 seminary trained men and women help by reviewing this chapter. I'm, I'm hopeful the next few pages will give you new thoughts about some very old passages of Scripture. Like, I'm sure 50 trained Seminary people can't possibly ever be wrong. There, there's no particular order or by any means exhaustive. So let's start with the book of Acts. So here's what he does. He goes into the book of Acts and he says, uh, number one, Paul talks to some VIPs and he uses Acts chapter 17. And he says that Paul is in Athens and he's a little bit irritated. He has been waiting for Silas and Timothy for some time without the benefit of text messaging or Facebook. He has no idea if they receive the message or not or when they'll be arriving. And while he waits, he's checking out the city and finds idols everywhere he looks. It is starting to bother him, and he is wondering what he can do to point the uh, people of Athens toward the loving God that he has personally experienced. Uh-huh. That's kind of loosey-goosey. Instead of these idols made of stone, he has been talking in uh, day. Uh, all day to both church people and to city people asking about the idols and telling the story of Jesus and the resurrection. But it doesn't seem like he's making much progress. In fact, some of the city folk call him a babbler. Okay, so anyway, he kind of moves on from there and talks about how he talked to VIPs. Um, and then, you know, P Paul on Mars Hill, uh, number two, quotes a secular song. Uh, number three, Paul used the words of the secularist to scold Christians. Uh, number four, Jesus practiced, re uh, practiced redeeming the culture. Number five, a secular king gets his words. And parables were cutting edge. Topical teaching was a specialty of Jesus. And Jesus did not avoid the culture. And number four, uh, nine, Paul the chameleon. He, uh, so anyway, 
you get the idea here is he's trying to make the case. Let's see, Paul, you know, he quoted a secular song when he was on Mars Hill. That means that the church has to uh, meet the felt needs of uh, unbelievers. Well, here's the thing you got to keep in mind is that when Paul was uh, on a meeting with the Areopagus on Mars Hill, that wasn't a church service. That Paul was a missionary. He was outside of the church. He didn't change this church service. Anyway, so with that in mind, now that's the setup, let me read to you some of uh, Aaron Gardner's uh, response. And I think it's worth it. I, I like to see uh, guys get blogs up and running and want to encourage them in what they're doing. So uh, Aaron writes, he says, uh, nearly a year ago, I began to f- uh, to follow the moving and shaking that has been happening in the northern part of my state in a booming Christian congregation called Granger Community Church, a typical megachurch. Granger provi- uh, prides itself on being fully relevant to popular culture, even to the extent of using Coldplay songs to headline services and basing sermons on popular movies, drawing out spiritual themes and applying them to uh, the lives of Christians. As a testimony to the belief in the method above, the message, uh, 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 the method above message, executive pastor Tim Stevens wrote a book called Pop Goes the Church Should the Church Engage in Pop Culture to defend the church's philosophy of taking pop culture as the driving force behind its weekly services rather than the good news of Jesus Christ. Lacking theological basis, services at Granger lack the biblical substance giving popular culture the center stage. Granger wrongly bases its success on the number of people in attendance, not on the strength of their belief. I would even say what it is they believe at all. For the remainder of this post, I will take uh, chapter 8 titled, I'm Not a Theologian But, and address each of the 10 points he tries to make to justify a position that the church should not only address popular culture, but completely embrace it. Number one, Paul talks to some VIPs. Tim Stevens makes an initial point that Paul was talking to people that were not part of the faith, which meant that he needed to speak their language. Uh, really, huh? The references to the story on Mars Hill where Paul, noticing a series of idols, uh, points to one that is uh, to the unknown God and then tells them about the God that they do not know. It's a play on words. Paul does not suggest that these people have made an idol of the one true God, but instead uses a bit of wit to make a point. This is a story of making a connection point, a good way to make it a sermon illustration. However, Stevens uh, takes this point and pulls out implications that are not in the text on being relevant to culture and changing the presentation of the message to connect to the people who are around, who are around. Even in his discussion, he makes a point that Paul may have been doing this on the fly, but then uses it to suggest that his church, church's preparation of secular music for Sunday services is the same thing. He claims that Paul's strategy involved rebranding the Christian message when all that really happens here is Paul is making a joke at the expense of the sin and ignorance of the people he was speaking to. And I would point out, Aaron, again, go back to this point. When Paul was meeting before the Areopagus, this was not, 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 not a church service. Paul was out. He was sent out into the world to proclaim the gospel. He was acting as a missionary. So you can't look at Paul's um, you know, speech on Mars Hill as somehow indicative of a methodology that should be embraced during a church service. We continue. Number two, Paul quotes a secular song. In a similar spirit, 
As his first point, Stevens makes much of the quote that Paul uses from the parent secular song. Indeed, Paul does quote from memory a line from a poem that was regarded as a hymn, uh, being part of a hymn to Zeus. The emphasis that Paul gives to this quotation is completely missed by Stevens. Paul uses the, the quote to challenge its context, not to embrace it. Paul quotes the song as a work of pagan religion and foreign philosophy. It was not a, at all an effort to be relevant, but rather it was a statement against the popular culture of the day and a reorientation of the source from which we live and move and have our being. Now, I want to point something out to you. Uh, church historians will be qu- quick to point out that uh, Paul was in some way trying to create some common ground Okay, so that they could understand the gospel presentation. But when he got to the kicker, uh, their their idols being worthless, Jesus Christ crucified and risen from the dead, and calling them to repentance, they scoffed at him. And as a result of it, um, one of the things you could point to is is that early on in the history of the Christian church, there wasn't a growing and vibrant congregation in Athens. It was small. And uh, not large at all, okay? And, you know, it didn't take off like in places like Ephesus and Philippi and things like that. And it was a while before there was a really strong Christian presence in Athens. That should tell you something here, okay? Number three, Paul used the words of the secularists to scold Christians. Paul uh, Paul quotes a pagan philosopher in Titus one twelve, which Stephen states as an embrace of secular culture. <laughs> See, again, just because... Paul quotes something in secular culture does not mean that that is something that's binding or a methodology that should be embraced in a church service. It doesn't logically follow. Number four, Jesus practiced redeeming the culture. The concept in this title of this uh, of this point do not even appear in its dis- in its discussion. Similar to the arguments above about Paul's use of a singular line of a poem and a quote from a philosopher, Christ borrowed a Greek concept to make a point. Jesus calls the Pharisees hypocrites, which was a secular term that described an actor. He used the term to effectively make the point that that the action and the words of the religious leaders said nothing about who they are, but is an attitude of the heart that is important to God. In no way was this a redemption of the culture. Good point, Aaron. Which is, in fact, not only a misunderstanding of this point, but also a misinterpretation of Christ's mission on earth. Jesus made it clear that he that this that his was not a kingdom of this world, but that there was a different reign that he would have at the right hand of God the Father. No matter how often he used the word hypocrite, it does not illustrate in any way a redemption of the popular culture of first century Jerusalem. Good, good points. And there's more. This we're up to four, and actually we just finished four. This you know five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. If you want to read the, let me read the conclusion here, though. There's more points, but for the sake of time, if you want to read the rest of it, go to uh, Aaron's uh, blog, lunchboxswordpress.wordpress.com. That's right, lunchboxswordpress.com. And the name of the headline is Pop Went the Church. Let me read uh, his conclusion. Even though, at least from Stephen's feeble argument, Scripture may not teach us to be relevant to our... uh, uh, to our culture, it does not teach us to avoid it. Indeed, we are part of our world, and we are allowed to appreciate what it has to offer. Yet we must have the understanding and realization that Christ, uh, nor his kingdom, are of this world. When we seek to find God in the trappings and the toys that this life offers, 
then we come dangerously close to losing our own souls. Are we allowed to mention popular culture in our services? Well, absolutely. What Stevens has right is that Paul really did that. He used things from the culture of the day to speak to the people and engage them with something that was common to them. However, he never did a sermon series on the latest popular Greek tragedy, uh, nor were his song services filled with popular songs that he later used to talk about how God speaks to each of us. Salvation is completely alien to the human race. It means that there is nothing in us as humans that can present the good news of, of Christ's salvation except what he puts there himself. We must look up for our solution. We must do everything we can to point up. If we fail to do that in our Bible studies, in our church services, in our conversations, then we can hardly call our ministry Christian. Good critique, Aaron. Excellent, excellent work. Look forward to seeing what else uh, you uh, write in the future on your blog. Good stuff. Uh, yeah, again, you know, what's the point here? Uh, I kid you not. I mean... You know, kind of like on yesterday's sermon review, you know, I was talking about how, uh, you know, it's ridiculous to think that there are pastors out there preaching sermons on wild goose chases as being a good thing. Well, that things are so backwards in the seeker-driven movement. Executive pastors are like Tim Stevens, who isn't even theologically trained, who is who was on staff at one of the most influential megachurches, is twisting God's word and thinks that somehow he can justify scratching itching ears and his biblical attempt to justify scratching itching ears even though the bible says that's a bad thing really falls short when you take the time to scrutinize his justification in light of the clear teaching of god's word all right we're up on our second break and when we come back It'll be our sermon review, and you're not going to believe this. It's a good sermon review from uh, emergent church leader Doug Paget. Of course, we had to go way back in time, though, to make sure that this was a good sermon. Um, you're going to actually hear the gospel pretty well expounded, correctly taught. Uh, Christ's death on the cross for our sins, for our salvation. Now, this was before uh, the emergent church uh, guys got a hold of uh, Doug Paget, but well worth listening to, so I wanted to share that with you. Now, if you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. We will be right back. Reaching ears are scratched here. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. This is the air I breathe. This is the air I breathe. I've had enough. Of this sissy frenzy turning for the written music, you have the audacity to call worship. Men, put this entire girly praise band in the boo box. Let's wheel in the organ and get some real worship music underway.
Ye be listening to Pirate Christian Radio. Hi, Chris Rosebro here to talk to you about auto insurance. As the father of two teenage drivers, I know how expensive auto insurance can be. But as expensive as auto insurance is, it's nothing compared to the cost of not having it when you need it. That's why I'm excited to have Allstate Insurance as one of Pirate Christian Radio's featured advertisers. Did you know that drivers who switched to Allstate saved an average of $396 per year compared to what they were paying other companies? Now, I don't know about you, but I think $396 is a lot of money in these tough economic times. Why don't you give Allstate a call and see how much they can save you? You can reach them toll-free at 877-246-1511. Again, that's 877-246-1511. The good folks at Allstate will be happy to give you a free quote over the phone. And remember, you're in good hands with Allstate. The spring and summer travel seasons are just around the corner. And the last thing you want to do is pay more for your airfare, hotel, and rental car than you need to. That's why Pirate Christian Radio is proud to have Cheap O Air as one of our featured advertisers. Cheap O Air has over 18 million flight deals, low airfare guarantees, and 85,000 negotiated hotel rates around the globe. And if you visit our website piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. We have a promo code that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. So visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Write down the promo code, click on the web banner, and book your spring or summer travel today. And remember, a portion of your purchase at Cheapo Air will go to support Pirate Christian Radio. That web address again is piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Thank you for your support. Okay, we're back. Time for a trip down memory lane. What I mean by that is there was a time when the emergent guys, specifically Tony Jones and Doug Padgett, were not the liberal heretics that they are now. Proof that I have regarding this claim regarding Doug Padgett is the sermon I'm about to play for you. The good, the bad, the ugly, we review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We are an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's sermon is a blast from the past. It will give you an idea of just how far Doug Paget's emergent theology has taken him the journey hasn't led him closer to the gospel. It's led him farther and farther away from it. That being the case, you'll notice I'm playing the ukulele version of the good, the bad, the ugly. 
You may never hear Doug Padgett say things like you're about to hear him say today. Well, here on this program, you're going to hear this sermon, but you won't hear him talking like this nowadays. But there was a time when, for all intents and purposes, the gospel that uh, Doug Padgett preached and taught and proclaimed and defended when he was a youth minister was a gospel that you and I would be familiar with for the most part. Now, this is not a flawless sermon, but it's a good one. Uh, yeah, I know. I just, I'm just i still kind of in shock that what you're going to hear is Doug Padgett's voice. Let me kill the music. All right, so without any further ado, here is Doug Padgett from sometime in the 1990s, and it'll start mid-sentence. I apologize. The recording that was uh, smuggled uh, to me uh, via the Bothan Spy Network, uh, well, uh, well, um, it's, um, it got cut off in the beginning, but we can, we start, well, here it is. Here's Doug Padgett. You ready? Here we go. He died on a cross and he paid the death penalty so that you would not have to die for eternity. That's right. Right off the bat, you hear him starting with the gospel. For Jesus, it started when he was with his disciples. And they were at what's commonly known now as the Last Supper. Then it was the Passover meal. And they had wine in a goblet, and they had bread, and they had a tradition of what they would do. And then Jesus changed a few things. And he said, now this, this is my body. This is my body which, which is given for you, and it's broken. And it's broken for you. And the way that they did it back then, I'm going to teach you a lot of stuff tonight about the way that Jesus interacted with people, where he went, how he did it, how he talked. They would sit at a table, and tables didn't have chairs. They'd sit on the floor. It'd be a little low table like this. And they'd sit sideways, and they'd lean on one arm like this, and then they would take off pieces of the bread, and they'd eat it. And then they'd have the goblet, and it would be one maybe at this end of the table, one at that end, and they would each drink out of it, and they'd pass it around. So what you'll read in the Bible sometimes is you'll read this phrase where they'll say, the disciples were reclining at the table. You know, because they're actually reclining at the table. They're laying back there. Well, it was at that point where Jesus was there with his 12 very best friends. We now know them as the disciples. They were his best friends. They were the people that lived with him, had walked with him. They slept in the same little tents together. They'd eaten together. But there was one of those guys who wasn't happy with Jesus anymore. And Jesus wasn't doing what he wanted him to do. His name was Judas. And he knew that there were some religious leaders that didn't like Jesus anymore and didn't want Jesus to live anymore. And he could figure out a way for them to get Jesus in a real private place and they could come and take Jesus away and beat him and convince him not to keep talking. And the reason is because Jesus was saying that he was the son of God. And when a Jew in those days said stuff like that, it was a capital offense. Some states in the United States have capital punishment, where if you murder somebody, you could be executed for it. Where Jesus lived, if you were a Jew and you claimed to be God, you could be executed for that. Okay, so here we have a clear defense of Jesus Christ's deity from Doug Paget. Jesus was around the table and he said that this is going to be my body that's broken for you. And this is the new covenant of my blood which is shed for you. Some of you that experienced communion before, that's where it comes from. And what we're going to talk about tonight are the things that followed from that Lord's Supper, communion, first communion experience, all the way through to the resurrection. Jesus' buddy, Judas, got up and went out to betray him. Jesus knew that the next 
Two and a half days couldn't be stopped. He knew that starting on that Thursday night at that table, that he was now on a path where he was going to die for every sin you ever committed. And everything that you ever did that separated you from God or separated you from another person, Jesus made a decision laying at that table that he would get onto that road and he would take off. So So there you have Doug Padgett basically teaching vicarious atonement or what we would lovingly refer to as penal substitution. Wow. He went from this place, he took a couple of buddies with him. And he said, gentlemen, I need you to pray for me because I'm, I'm, I'm hurting in my spirit. And he went over to his favorite place, which is called the Garden of Gethsemane. So they went on a little journey, and they went over to the Garden of Gethsemane. This was one of Jesus' favorite places to go. It was a little garden. It had rock, and it had, you know, probably not this cheesy little fence and stuff, but it had the, the ivy and it had flowers. And Jesus would go there, and he would pray. Jesus went there and said to his friends, guys, stay right here. And you need to pray for me because I'm starting to get sorrowful in my heart. And he was saying to those guys, I need you now. So the Bible says that Jesus went and he got down on his knees and he prayed. And this is how Jesus prayed. Sometimes we think, you know, that Jesus probably went like this or he just held his hands up or he's God, so why is he even praying? But he did pray. He got down on his knees and he took his forehead and he put it right on the ground. And the reason that he got all the way down on the ground like this is because he wanted to pray, showing God that he was totally humble before God. So Jesus got on his knees in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he said a whole bunch of stuff, but this is the part that he told his disciples later that he said. He got together, and he had his head down, and he said, Father, Father, if there is any other way for a person to have a relationship with you, then let this cup pass from me. See, this cup that he had just held earlier... He said, this is the new covenant, which is my blood. So he said, if there's any way for me not to have to fill this cup with my blood, then let that happen. Jesus, at the mere thought of what it would take for him to die on that cross so that you could hold the hand of God, dropped him to his knees, and he begged with God that if there's any other way, I mean, if there's a way for you just to live a good life and then you could go to heaven, Jesus said, then let's do it that way, God, because I don't want to die on that cross if there's any other way. If she will understand, God, how much you love her, other than me shedding my blood, then let's do that because I don't want to waste my time on this. And he's in the garden and he prays and he goes back to his friends and he walks up and his friends aren't praying for him. His friends aren't pulling for him. His friends are sleeping. He's just had one of his very best friends run off to go turn him over, and we'll talk about that later. Now he comes back to his friends again, and these guys are sleeping on him. Some of you know what that's like. You know what it's like to have a good friend, to trust him, to depend on him, to say you need him, and then you go there and they're sleeping. They're not doing anything. They're not paying attention. They don't care. Yeah, I want to point something out here. One thing that's clear in listening to Doug Padgett here preach, this guy is no dummy. Doug is a very intelligent guy, and he's also a pretty darn good communicator. What happened? Whew. Notice how he's, he's really retelling the entire story, sticking close to the text, and filling in historical details to this thing. He's painting a brilliant picture. How did he get off of this gospel to the one that he's currently 
proclaiming. Wow. So Jesus goes back a second time, gets down on his knees, and he starts begging, Father, if there's any other way. And the Bible said that he started to feel deep anguish. And he started to think, and he started to consider, and he started to understand what this road would mean. And he said, Father, if there's any other way for him to hold your hand, let's do it that way. And he went back to his buddies again, and they're still sleeping. The Bible says a third time, he dropped on his knees, put his forehead on the ground, and begged with God to let this cup pass from him. And the Bible says that Jesus started to anguish so deeply that his heart started to pound and pound and pound and pound at the mere thought of what it was going to take for you to hold the hand of God. His heart was racing. I don't know if you can all see this, but my forehead and stuff gets red. I get blotchy on my neck. People do that when they exercise. They get flushed. They get red. The reason is because as you start to exercise or do something active, your heart starts to pump faster, and all that blood, all those, that blood starts going through your blood vessels, and your blood vessels expand, and then they make contact a little bit with the skin, and that's how you become flush. Well, what happened to Jesus, the Bible says, is that his heart started to pound so fast, so much blood was rushing through those blood vessels at the mere thought of what was coming that the blood vessels expanded to the point that they got little tears in them and the blood seeped through the blood vessels into his sweat glands. And the Bible says that when he was on his knees saying, Father, if there's any other way, his heart pounded so hard, pushed so much blood through the blood vessels that they tore and he dripped and sweat drops of blood. The mere thought of what it would take for you to be a Christian nearly killed Jesus Christ. Just thinking of it. Imagine how bad it was really going to be. And then he said these amazing words. Not my will, Father, but your will be done. And in that dark garden, he stood up. And the Bible says that angels had to be sent to strengthen him or he would have died. He would have had a heart attack just thinking about how bad it was going to be for him so that you and I could hold the hand of God. So he went over to the edge of the garden where his buddies were sleeping, and he said, gentlemen, it's time to get up. And at that time, it was getting dark, and a whole bunch of people started to come around, and Judas came up to him and greeted him with a kiss. Because in those days, you didn't just use, do a handshake. You'd give a little kiss on each side of the cheek. And it was dark, and they didn't know which one Jesus was. And all these people were coming to arrest him because they didn't want him claiming to be God anymore. And Jesus now was set. He said, Father, I will do whatever it takes, even if the thought of it will kill me. And he stood up, and he went to his buddies. And these people came, and they went to grab him. And one of the guys who'd been sleeping was Peter. And Peter jumps up, pulls out a sword, and swacks this guy's ear off. Peter is ready to kill somebody for Jesus. So he takes a sword and he swings at this guy. The guy moves his head and it cuts off his ear. And Jesus, while he's considering what it's going to take to die for you and for me, picks up this guy's ear and performs a miracle and puts it back on. And they arrest Jesus and they drag him over to a whole series of trials. 
And he ends up, first of all, bringing, being brought before a religious leader named Ananias. And what Ananias' job was, was to figure out if Jesus was really doing something that was against the law for a Jew. When Jesus experienced the hematridosis thing, which is what that's called when your blood vessels expand to the point where you, where you leak blood through and it makes contact with your sweat glands. It's a medical condition called hematridosis. When people suffer hematridosis, they say that people almost always have a heart attack when it happens. His heart probably quit and an angel had to come and start it. And his skin was so sore from that blood vessel, from, from, from that blood getting up into his sweat glands, and the blood's much thicker than your sweat, and it tore the blood vessels. And all over, he had rashes, and he was opened up, and he had little cuts, and he had blood all over him. And he's brought before this guy named Ananias. Ananias is asking him questions, saying, Do you claim to be the Son of God? And Jesus said, I am. And they went absolutely berserk. And they beat Jesus. Guys would grab him and hold him, and people would run up, and they would punch him in the stomach. And it would lift him off the ground. And his body is sore, and his heart is weak, and they started to beat him. They said, do you still claim to be the Christ? And they were going nuts on him. And then they wanted him executed. But the Jews at that day, even though they had this law where if you claim to be the son of God, you should be executed, they couldn't execute somebody. They had to go to the government, which was run by the Romans. So they brought Jesus to a guy named Pontius Pilate. Now, the reason that this whole dinner thing was going on is because it was the Passover. And because it was the Passover, then all the religious leaders came together into one place. The Romans, who were the governors of the place, the political people, didn't want a big uprising. So they all came together, too, to keep control. So all the people who ran the place where Jesus lived would be like having the president there and the governors there and the mayor there and the pope there. All those people were there. Well, they brought him from the high priest, sort of like the pope guy, Ananias, over to the head guy who was running the show there named Pontius Pilate. Pontius Pilate had oversight over this whole area. So they brought him to Pontius Pilate, and Pontius Pilate talked to him and said, now what's the big deal here? He knew the Jews were getting all riled up, and he said, okay, here's what we're going to do. I'm going to talk to him, and then we'll give him a good beating, and we'll tell him to shut up and quit doing this stuff, and we'll send him on his way. So they took Jesus out, and they stuck a pole in the ground, and they tied him up to it. And they put his hands up on the, on, uh, onto the pole, and they took his shirt off, and they pulled his pants off so that his, so that his behind was showing, and the back of his legs were showing, and they took a whip, and they started to whip his back. And Jesus would hold it, and they put a man on this side, and they put a man on this side, and they would exchange whips. And it wasn't a regular, ordinary whip either. It was a whip that came down and broke into nine little segments at the end. They call it a cat of nine tails. And each little segment that it broke into had a little ball on it of leather. And that little ball of leather had pieces of shell and pieces of rock and pieces of metal in it. So when they would take this whip and they would crack it into his back, it would hit and the nine pieces would dig in, it would grab a hold of flesh, and it would yank the flesh out. And here is the Son of God that loves you so much, tied up, and there's a guy on each side whipping him. And I think Jesus is probably saying at this point the same thing he said on the cross out loud, saying it to himself, Father, forgive him. Father, forgive him. And they're whipping him. And he comes back and Pilate says, so what are you going to do? Jesus didn't answer. 
Pilate gets so mad that he said, okay, you, you know what? I'm not even going to deal with you. There's another guy here, another, another political leader. Let's send him over there. So he sends him over to Herod, and this guy starts picking on him. Now, let me tell you about this guy named Herod. Herod was one of the political leaders in the area where Jesus roamed around. Jesus had a very best friend. His name was John. He called him John the Baptist because he went out baptizing people. John the Baptist was telling people they need to repent of their sin. There was this Herod guy who was running the show, and he was lusting after his stepdaughter, wanted to have sex with her. So the mom said to the girl who Herod wanted to have sex with, said, hey, here's, here's the deal. Why don't you tell him that you'll have sex with him if he'll grant you anything you want? Okay, got to pause right there. Uh, that's, <clears throat> I'm not sure that's exactly what that means. <laughs> uh, the uh, the story of uh, Herodias and uh, Her- Herod, uh, she danced and pleased him. I don't think that means that he, yeah, just minor correction there. I don't recall that in the text. So the girl did. And because this mom was so mad at Jesus for condemning her sin, the girl said, here's what I want, Herod. I'll have sex with you if you give me the head of John the Baptist on a platter. So Herod sent somebody out a few years earlier to get Jesus' very best friend, a guy that he grew up with from the time they were kids. Moms were cousins. Sent him out. Got John the Baptist. Brought him to a chopping block. Chopped off his head. Put it on a platter. And in the middle of a party, walked in and pulled the top off and said, the head of John the Baptist. Jesus is very best friend. Jesus has just decided that he is going to go through a journey that's going to lead to a cross, that's going to lead to a resurrection, so that Herod, even Herod, can spend eternity in heaven. His heart is broken because of what his friends did and because of what's going on physiologically inside of him. His body is in total pain. He's now been beaten in the front and his back's been ripped open. It's the middle of the night and they drag him and put him face to face with the man who killed his best friend. It has been a long, long day for Jesus. If you go into a store and you see these little pictures where Jesus is just kind of hanging there and there's a little trickle of blood and he's got a big long face and you think, yeah, big deal. Well, you miss it. He was a real guy who was really the son of God who really bled and really hurt and really died so that you could hold the hand of God. Jesus refused to talk to Herod. Just stared at him. Herod got intimidated, sent him back to Pilate. By this time, a huge crowd of Jews were all riled up. They were all building up, and they were all yelling, and they were cheering, and they were saying, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. And Pilate was saying, there's got to be another way to do this. I don't want to crucify this guy. The problem was Pilate was not the sort of guy who could stand up to a crowd. So he said, Jesus, here's the deal. Tell him you're not the son of God. And Jesus said, I am. I am. And he said, then here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to beat you again, and we're going to send you back out there again, and we're going to see if that'll be enough. So this time, they put guys on each side that had sticks, and they would ram the sticks up underneath his ribs so he couldn't breathe. And then they had a guy who took chunks of his beard and would mock him 
and say, oh, okay, prophet man, try this. And he would rip the beard right out of Jesus' face. So he's bleeding and there's big gashes. Then they blindfolded him and they took a stick and they passed it around. And somebody would hit him on the head and then somebody else would hit him on the head. And they'd say, tell us who hit you, prophet boy. And they'd spin him around and his back is bleeding. His ribs are hurting. His heart is breaking. His skin's hurt. And they took a crown that they made out of these long thorns, like on a thorn bush. And they twisted it together. And they said, let's make him a crown. And they put this thing of thorns on his head. And they were big, long thorns. And they set him on, and then with a little mallet, they would tap him into his head until they would go into the skin and then snap off. And that's how it would stay on his head. And they put this purple robe on him. And they dragged him out and they stood him up on this balcony. And they said, now behold, you're Christ. And Jesus is a wreck. He's a bloody mess. The book of Isaiah says that the Christ was beaten beyond recognition. You couldn't hardly recognize him. The crowd started to go more crazy more crazy and more crazy. Pilate wanted a way out of it. So he looked in the law books, found this old obscure law that allowed them to release one prisoner every year on this religious holiday. So they found the meanest, cruelest, most vile person in the whole area of Jerusalem and said, let's get him. His name was Barabbas. Barabbas was a murderer. So they brought Barabbas out and they stood him on one side and they put Jesus on the other side and they said, now tell us today, who do you want us to let free? Do you want us to let Barabbas the murderer go or do you want us to let Jesus go? And Pilate was sure that these people would say, "Ah, all right, let Jesus go and we'll take care of him. But the crowd chanted and screamed, free Barabbas and crucify Jesus. If it weren't for the fact that Jesus fully understood that God was in control and that he was going to pay for your sin through what was about to happen, he may have doubted. But he knew. He knew that if he was let free and Barabbas was executed, that you, you, and that me would have to die ourselves. So at the same time, there was probably fear. There was joy in his heart that he was going to die so you could live. Keep in mind, you're hearing Doug Paget preaching really kind of close to, uh, sticking tight to the text here, uh, the vicarious atonement of Jesus Christ on the cross for your sins, mine. Wow, what happened? They made Jesus carry his own cross. His cross was probably even proportionate to him bigger than this. Jesus was only about five foot three. He wasn't a real big guy. Nobody back then was real big. I just wonder where he gets that from. I didn't know that Jesus' height was mentioned in the text. He's a little sloppy on some of the historical details. He's about five foot three, so proportionately his cross was a little bit bigger than this. They made him carry it himself. His back is so torn open. He's got blood running down his face. 
His beard's been ripped out. His face is swollen. You can't hardly recognize him. It already hurts to breathe because he's been hit up underneath the ribs so many times. It's been all night long. He hasn't eaten. They put this cross, and he starts to carry it over his shoulder, and he starts to drag it, and the wood is rubbing on his back. And with every step, Jesus is starting to say, it's worth it. It's worth it. This is worth it. And he's probably not imagining his own pain. The greatest no-fear shirt, the greatest Nike commercial in the world could not understand the determination that Jesus had to go through for us. And he was dragging that thing till he just collapsed and couldn't carry it anymore. And they had to grab a guy out of the crowd and say, carry the cross for him. And he carried the cross up onto a hill where they were going to execute people. And when, like, they were ex- like they were going to execute Barabbas that day, there were two other guys that were being executed that day. And what they did is they took Jesus and they laid him down on his cross. And they had one person lay across his legs. They had another person lay across his chest. One person hold down his arm. And they took these big, long nails, a little bit shorter than this one, And they would take the nail, and an executioner would find a place right on his wrist. Sometimes you'll see pictures where it's through his hand. It couldn't be in his hand. You'll see why in a minute, because there's so much weight that's going to go on that nail that it would just break the bones in his hand. So they found this place on his wrist, right where this this bone goes here, that bone goes there, and one crosses. They would go right next to that and make sure they didn't lose too much blood. They would place it right on that spot. And with Jesus' arm on the wood, somebody holding it down because his body's about to rake, a guy would take a sledgehammer while somebody else would hold it, and he would jam the nail right through his wrist. And the first one had to go through the wrist, and now it's sliced nerves in there. And Jesus' arm is jerking, and it's pulling. And the end of the nail had a much bigger end on it than does this one. Because Jesus would pull so hard that he would just pull right through. And this guy had to be there because he didn't want Jesus' arm to move around. So he's holding it down. And after it gets through his arm, then he starts to pound it into the wood. And every hit, it starts to go into the wood. And it sends vibrations up through the nail into those nerves. And now the pain in these nerves have cut all the way down through his arm and back through his shoulders. And Jesus is just breaking with pain. They probably took ropes and put it around this part of his arm so that in one of those times he wouldn't pull so hard that even though the end was big, he would still pull it all the way through. And they took another one on this side. And they nailed it through. And they nailed it in. Jesus pulling. And it hurts so bad, he cannot believe it. And he's going, it's worth it. This is worth it. The book of Colossians says everything that was made was made by Christ. The tree that they made the cross out of, he made. The metal that the nail was made out of, he made. And now they're using it to kill him. That's a great Christological point, too. Wow. And he could have stopped it. But he said it's worth it. And they tied this arm. Then they laid him down. And they bent his legs. I'll explain why in a minute. And they took a longer nail, much longer than this one. And they put it right on the top of his foot. Same kind of place. You have a bone that goes down here, a bone that goes down here, one that crosses here. And they wanted to make sure that when this nail went through, it didn't cut the Achilles tendon. So these guys are professional executioners, and they knew right where to put that and how to drive that thing so it would be right next to the Achilles tendon. 
And they pounded it through. And when the first shot went in, it got the nail in. And the second and third and fourth finally got it through his bones. And that's just one foot. And somebody's holding his leg and it's kicking. And they line it up on top of the other one. And they probably hit him. Told him to quit squirming. And with his knees bent, they drove it through the other foot. And then finally drove it into the wood. Then they took the cross that was laying on the ground and had it right in front of a three-foot hole. And they took the cross and they lifted it up and dropped it in the hole. And the reason they did that is because when you die of a crucifixion, you die of suffocation. Because what happens is when that thing falls in the hole, it jars his body. And when it hits, it knocks all the air out of his lungs. So they lifted him up and then they dropped him in the hole. And everything pulled forward. And he couldn't breathe. If you've been put in a full Nelson before, you know that what happens is you get your ribs pulled so far that your lungs can't expand. So what happened is, Jesus would hang there and he couldn't breathe. So he would pull on the nails in his wrists and push up on the nail in his foot. And he would breathe. And then he would collapse. And he hung on that cross. And people threw things at him. And they gambled for his clothes. They called his parents' names. They mocked him. And they laughed at him. And there's guys on the side of him. One guy said, you are the Christ. Please remember me. When you're in your glory. And the other guy said, this guy's full of garbage. He hung there with somebody believing, somebody weeping, somebody insulting, and somebody hating. And he pulled himself up. He tried to breathe, and then he collapsed. And he tried to breathe, and then he collapsed. And for three hours, for three hours, he hung there. The Son of God himself. While these people are yelling, come on off the cross, you Christ. Hey, if you're such a big God, man, why don't you come off the cross? Ha ha. Ha ha. Never knowing that if Jesus wanted to, he could have taken that hand and squeezed it and shot that nail at a guy. And walked off that cross. But he chose to stay there. Because if he didn't stay, we'd have to go. And where does that kind of love come from? They say that it runs in his blood. And he hung there, and he hung there, and then he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And after three hours, the sun went black. The sun went black. And it wasn't an eclipse. (laughs) There you go. It wasn't an eclipse. It wasn't a big cloud. It was God turning his face. And every sin that you've ever committed, every lie, every impure thought, every cheating, every mean thing, every murder that's ever been done, every evil that's ever been committed, right then was put right on top of Jesus Christ. And God turned his face. And he paid what it took so that we wouldn't have to pay for our own sin. 
He walked up to our table at a restaurant and took the check and said, I'm paying for it. He took a credit card bill. He took a college loan. And he said, I'm taking care of it. It's all paid for. He walked up and said, here's the title to your house. It's all taken care of. He paid everything that needed to be paid before God so that we wouldn't have to pay for our sin. Then the Bible says that he pushed up one last time. And he screamed something that they used to yell once they run once they had run an entire marathon. And in Aramaic, he yelled, Tetaliste! Which means it's finished. It is finished. And the Bible says, he died. And the moment he yelled, Tetaliste, it's finished. The sin is paid for. He died. And the Bible says three things happened. The earth shook. And there was an earthquake. <clears throat> It was at that moment where the whole foundation of the earth experienced redemption and forgiveness of sin. Have you ever seen something really gross? And you look at it, maybe it's a dead animal laying somewhere or somebody's legs doing one of those crazy things in a football game. And you look at them and you just kind of go, ugh. Gives you the shivers and kind of makes you, ugh. God took all of creation when he saw all that sin on Jesus and went, oh. And shook it. And the Bible says that then, after the sun went dark and he yelled, Tetaliste, the earth shook. And the curtain in the temple split from top to bottom. There was this temple place where the holy people would go. It was a 70-foot high ceiling, which is about three times as high as this, this ceiling in here. Went way up to the tip top. Can you turn the light on there, Mike? Went, went way up to the top. And this curtain came down in a big round wall, about that thick. And inside that place, they kept the Ark of the Covenant. And the Ark of the Covenant was the place where the high priest every year would go because that was the dwelling place of God. That's where God was. One time a year, one holy man could go into that place and do a sacrifice for all of sin. And when Jesus yelled, Tetaliste, that curtain, the Bible says, ripped from top to bottom, 17 inches thick of material, a solid wall went and opened up. When God forgave sin, the earth shook. And when God made himself available to people, the curtain tore. And the Bible says that the tombs broke open and the bodies of dead people who had been dead for years came alive and walked around Jerusalem. Sin was paid for. God was accessible. And death was defeated when he died on the cross. I have an article, if you want to pick it up tonight, written in the Journal of American Medical something from people at the Mayo Clinic. They did a physiological study on what a human crucifixion like Jesus experienced would be like. And they say that it is the most physically painful death that a human male can experience. The only thing physiologically more painful is if a woman is unable to deliver a baby in childbirth and dies from the eruption on the inside out. But for a human male, there is nothing that could be more painful than that death of a crucifixion. And it was so that sin could be paid for. 
God could be accessed. And we could experience new life. The other two guys that were hanging there had their bodies taken off the cross and thrown over in a dump and dogs came and ate them. They didn't want that to happen to Jesus. So one of the rich guys that hung around with Jesus had a tomb. Tombs aren't like graves are today. Tombs are a little different. Tombs are dug out of all this rock. And dug out of the rock, they would have a big stone that would then access a hole. And you'd have to slide and climb into the hole. So it was a little bit bigger than this, but the stone was moved. Jesus' body had all these things done to it, and he was wrapped. One piece around his head, another piece around his body. Two separate pieces. And they took him, and they slid him in to the tomb, and then they closed it up. And then a whole bunch of guys were afraid. You know what's going to happen? Jesus has been talking about like him coming back to life and stuff. So you know what's going to happen? They were thinking a bunch of his wacko followers are going to run over there and they're going to steal his body and then they're going to say, oh yeah, Jesus came to life and yak, yak, yak. So what they did is they got the government to put a seal on it that said if anybody allows this stone to be moved, you know, kind of like when they put a seal on a letter, you can tell if it's been opened. If anybody allows that to happen, they'll be executed. Then they put guards right next to the tomb so that nobody could come near it. Well, Sunday morning came around. The earth shakes again. The stone rolls out of the way. The guards freak out. And they run. And later that morning, one of Jesus' followers came, and she was going to do something to his body while the guards were there, make it be okay, and looked in, and he wasn't in there. He wasn't in there anymore. And the guards saw that he wasn't in there, and they were scared, so they ran back to all those religious... And, and they said, okay, here's what happened. These angels came, and the rocks moved, and he's not in there anymore. So they said, okay, before we get a big problem, let's make up a story. Say the disciples came, they beat you up, and they took him. Like the disciples are going to be able to beat up these, these armed guys. Peter couldn't even hit the guy in the head with the sword. And he's going to come and he's going to kill these guys and take the body out of there. He's going to move this big giant stone out of the way. And the stone didn't just roll. It was on top of a hill. That angel probably moved it and then just for fun kicked it up on top of the hill. So now how did the disciples put the stone up there? Women ran back, got a couple of the guys. John and Peter went running. John outran Peter, got there first, looked in, waited for Peter. Then they went in together, and they looked inside. And there they saw the head piece laying in one spot and the whole body piece laying in another, and Jesus wasn't there. And they came out. Jesus met them on the road. Then for 40 days, Jesus went around and taught the disciples. And there was a guy named Thomas. And Thomas didn't like to believe a whole lot. And Thomas said, you know what? He was one of the disciples, one of the followers. And Thomas was like, hey, okay, I'm not buying that. I'm going to buy a lot of things. I'm going to buy the year going back on, but I'm not buying him coming back to life. There's no way. Okay, if you show me Jesus and I can put my hand in his side in that hole, because I didn't even tell you this part, but he's hanging there on the cross. And to make sure that he was dead, they took a spear and they jammed it up through his, through his rib into his lung and punctured his lung. And first came out water. And then came out blood because his body had filled up with fluid. So it was clear fluid first and then blood. Thomas said, if I could put my hand in that side, because Thomas stood there. He watched the guy jam the spear up into his lung. Or if I could touch the, the nail holes in his hand, then I'll believe. 
One day, Thomas is sitting there. Jesus shows up and goes, Tom, look, look, I believe. You know what Thomas said? My Lord and my God. My Lord and my God. And for 40 days, Jesus went around. And the Bible doesn't say everything that he did. You know what I can imagine happened a couple of times? Jesus would walk up to a house. The door would open. There would be a big burly guy standing there, a government official. Jesus would look at him and say, you hit me the fourth time right here. And I forgive you. And he went around to those guys that had blindfolded him. And said, come on, prophet boy, and tell us who hit you. He said, yeah, you hit me. And when I died, it was to forgive your sin. Book of John, chapter 1, verse 9 says this. Jesus came into the world that was his. But they didn't all receive him. They didn't all believe in his name. But to those who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave them the right to become a child of God. Revelation 3.20 says that Jesus stands at the door of our hearts and knocks. And if we open the door, like those Roman political guys did, and look at Jesus. Okay, I'm going to point something out here. That's not what the Revelation teaches. Revelation is Jesus knocking on the door of a church, not on the door of your heart. So obviously, at the time this was delivered, uh, Paget here... Uh, you almost want to overlook that part. I mean, he's talking about Christ dying on the cross for our sins. He's talking about Christ's blood forgiving our sins. This is a very different Doug Paget than the current Doug Paget that is uh, preaching and teaching nowadays. But I just wanted to clear that up. Revelation does not teach Jesus is sitting at the door of our hearts, you know, knocking, going, "Let me in, please." Uh, no, that was kind of an ironic statement that Jesus was making to a church, not to humans, but to a church. We continue. He says he'll come into our hearts. And he'll come in. I'll tell you real clearly what I'm going to ask you to do in a few minutes. In a couple minutes, I'm going to ask you that if you've never received Jesus Christ, open the door of your heart and ask him in. Ask him to forgive your sin that you would receive him and therefore become a child of God. Not a child born because of a human decision, but a child born because of what God does. This isn't your parents' call. They can't decide this for you. You have to decide this for you. Do you take your own check and go pay it? And die your own death? Or do you let Jesus do it so that you can experience eternal life? And for those of you that have at another time in your life accepted Jesus Christ, I'm going to ask you to make a commitment to live your life with the same intensity and the same love for Jesus Christ that he lived his life and that he died for you. That you wouldn't cheat him by allowing him to die for you in a more intense way than you'll live for him. That you will not allow your relationship with him to be that fake and that phony. That if he would give it all for you... <clears throat> um law you that you'd be willing to live your whole life for him
That's what I'm going to ask you to do, and I want you to think about it. We're going to give you about four minutes. And I'm going to come back up. And I'm going to give you a challenge, and you're going to hear the guys, and then I'm going to ask any of you that want to either ask Jesus Christ into your life to forgive your sin or want to commit yourself to live for him. And we're not going to play games. We're not going to fake it. I mean, it's, it's, this isn't my thing. This is between you and God. Spend the next four minutes watching this and thinking about if you want to have Jesus Christ either forgive your sin or if you want to consider living your life with the same love and intensity that he died for you. Okay, I'm going to fast forward through this. Uh, obviously, we can't see the video presentation, so hold on. God is very real, and so is your sin, and so is the blood sacrifice that it took so that you could hold the hand of God. The Bible says you have to decide a lot of things. And really, this isn't me talking. This is God. Choose whom you're going to serve. Decide to pay for your own sin or let Jesus pay it for you. Okay, notice a little bit of confusion here and kind of a Pelagian guilt trip tactic. Uh, we continue. And choose to live your life in a way that honors God. Guys, why don't you, why don't you come on up? In a minute, they're going to do a song called Decide for You. I've decided for me. June, April 1st, 1983. I went to a place where they did a play with all this stuff. And God called me that night and said in my heart, I want to forgive your sin through my son, Jesus Christ. And I had to decide. I had to decide that day if I was going to allow him to pay for my sin or pay for it myself. And every day since then, I have had to decide each and every day, am I going to live my life to honor the name and the love and the blood of Jesus Christ with the same intensity that he had when he died for me? Or am I going to make a mockery and a joke out of the Christ who gave his life for me? Okay, this is interesting. And the reason why this is interesting at this point is that um, what he just talked about as far as his um, conversion experience, he's telling this group of kids in the 90s something, a, a slightly different story than the story he gives in his book, A Christianity Worth Believing. We'll have to come back to this one. But I just want to put down this marker and say, whoa, there's a slight difference in the history that uh, Doug Padgett gives here in this sermon as compared to what's recorded in his book. Huh. In about three minutes, I'm going to ask you to decide. And you're going to make a decision one way or another. If you blow this off and you don't care, you decide. I'm going to blow it off and I don't care. Or you're going to decide to invite Jesus Christ into your life if you never have. Or you're going to decide to live yourself. Or you're going to decide to live your life for him. Or you're going to decide not to. You're going to decide to pay for your own sin. Or you're going to decide to say, you know what, Jesus? I don't need you. I don't need to live for you. I don't need to honor your name. 
I'll do whatever I want. I can't make that decision for you. I can tell you that Bruce has and that Tim has and that Peter has and that Joe has and that Steve has. I can tell you all sorts of people around here I know have. But we can't decide. You need to decide for you. So if you don't want to listen to the words, don't listen. If you want to talk to God, you ask him. If you've ever had your sin forgiven, or you ask him to tell you if you are living or if you are not living your life to honor the name of his son. All right, I'm going to fast forward through the song. I have, uh, I'm, I'm proud of a lot of things. I'm proud of my kids. Um, I'm proud of a lot of things. But there's nothing I'm more proud of than the gospel of Jesus Christ. For me, what I had the privilege of sharing with you tonight is the most significant thing in the world. The Bible says this, that I will not be ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of salvation for those who believe. Can't decide for you. You have to decide for you. Quickly, I'm just going to ask you to shut your eyes and picture yourself before God, because you are, because he is here. Because Okay, I can see where you probably, there's enough rattling loose in his theology even at this point. I could see how the, the emergent church probably becomes, uh, in liberalism, becomes uh, appealing. I mean, what we're hearing here is a, a a good, decent gospel presentation followed up with Pelagian, um, you know, decision tactics. Hmm. He sees your heart. He knows your thoughts. He knows your entire day. He knows. Yet at the same time, he knows what the gospel is. Oh, your entire life. Jesus died to pay for every sin that you've ever committed. He did it willingly. Now, without paying attention to what's around, that's why you're closing your eyes. It's not something spiritual. I want to ask you if you have ever asked Jesus Christ into your life to be your Lord and Savior. If you've received him, if you've heard him knocking at the door of your heart, and you've opened that door and received him and therefore become a child of God. And if you have not and you would like to tonight, I want you to raise your hand right now. If you've never asked Jesus Christ into your life and you want to have your sin forgiven and you want to become a Christian, that you'll raise your hand. Now I want to picture I want you to picture yourself before God, all of you. I want you to ask yourself this question. Do you now live your life in the way that you think? Not the way I think or the way other people think, but the way you think brings honor to the Christ who died for you. And if you would like to, whether you have in the past, or you want to start now, live your life to bring honor to him. From this day on, I'm going to ask you to stand up. And this isn't a game. This isn't a joke. I don't, it's not up to me if you stand up. This is about you. This is about, I don't know what you're going to remember about tonight. I don't know if you're going to remember a song. I hope you do, because if a guy can hit a note like that, it's worth remembering. I don't know if you're going to remember a video. I don't know if you're going to remember a red cross showing up. This is a little overwhelming, and I just, I, I'm not going to make anybody sit down. But if you really want to live your life to honor the Christ that died for you, then tomorrow morning when you get up, you start by talking to God.
not listening to the radio or worrying about your hair or yelling at your mom for getting you up late or anything else. You start by talking to God. Then you let God talk to you. He's already written you some great stuff. That's a wonderful place to start. And you find other people that are around you here that are standing up. And those of you that are not standing up, I'm most proud of you because at least you're being honest. And I'm most going to pray for you because I hope you'll live your life in a way that will honor God too. I want you to find somebody around here that you think you can encourage. Because if this many people would honestly live their life to honor that Christ, there'd be an awful lot of people who'd be willing to raise their hand at the first question and say, I'd be glad to ask that Christ into my life. I love you guys, and I hope, I pray that what you decided is true, that you'll honor the Christ who gave his life for you. I'm going to pray for you, and then uh, you can go. But actually, before you go, some people, when I do this talk, want to know, is all that stuff really in the Bible? Are you sure that stuff's true? And staff people around you have little packets or little uh, packets of purple paper, two-sided things, have everything that I talked about on them. After we pray tonight, if you want to go to a staff person and get one of those, I'll have everything we talked about and where it is in the Bible. The tearing curtain, the dead people, the whole thing. It's really there. Then maybe you could share it with somebody else if you'd like to. So I'm going to pray for you before you go. God, I simply ask that you... Okay, I'm going to stop right there. Well, that's proof positive that at one point in uh, Doug Paget's career in Christian ministry, he understood the biblical gospel, proclaimed it. He was confused in this sense that uh, what we did here is uh, Pelagianism or semi-Pelagianism and decision theology kind of tacked onto the end there. But what's clear is, is that he understood that Christ died on the cross for our sins. He preached biblical texts as if they were true and authoritative. He believed them. At least there was, I mean, I don't have any reason to doubt that he didn't believe what he was saying when he taught this. And now Doug Paget repudiates that gospel message says the story is better than that. So he knows what he's rejecting. But boy, wow. Talk about a night and day difference. After listening to this, I'm going to need to spend some time uh, doing some comparative work on what I know of Doug Padgett's history because I detected something that sounded to me like a difference in his story. And um, I, I got to get back to you on that. I, I'm going to have to do some research and uh, do some asking around to see if I'm hearing this correctly. Because uh, the story he gives of his conversion in uh, his book, uh, Christianity Worth Believing, which is the Christianity that Doug Paget cobbled together in his basement a couple winters ago, um, his his conversion story has some of the same elements that he told here in this sermon, but there's some differences, and I'm wondering what's with the omissions. I I, I got to see if it's a real contradiction or if I'm just being a little too uh, wound up, a little too tight. I'll get back to you on that. What'd you think, though? What'd you think?
I mean, I don't feel like I need to add much to this. What he said about Christ dying on the cross for our sins, absolutely true. What he said about uh, the Scriptures teaching that the, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation, absolutely true. And so, you know, going back in time, you got to hear Doug Paget proclaim to you Christ and him crucified for your sins. And to that we can say amen. So you're a sinner, I'm a sinner. Repent, therefore, trust in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, for there's no other name given under heaven by which men must be saved. It's good news for you, and it's good news for me. And you know what's interesting? I'll, I'll bring this up. Uh, the question comes up every now and then. Chris, you always say repent and believe the gospel. Repent and trust in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Isn't that decision theology? No, it's not, actually. it's um, Dr. Rosenblatt describes it as compressed gospel. Uh, consider it to be a gospel imperative, if you would, and with the understanding that what the gospel demands, the gospel provides, and that God himself is the one who grants repentance. God is the one who gives faith. And it comes through the preaching of the gospel. And the call of all Christians, call of all Christians, is daily confession, daily repentance, daily trusting in Christ, daily taking up your cross and following Jesus. It's good news for you, and it's good news for me. May God keep us in that faith and in that gospel until either we die or our great God and Savior Jesus Christ comes again in glory to call us home to him and say to us, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Not because there's any righteousness in and of ourselves, but because we are made right and pleasing in God's sight on account of what Christ has done for us, on account of the fact that by faith we are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Our sins are forgiven. Amen. Need to remind you all, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring this important radio outreach to you as well as to the world. You can support us financially and partner with us by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com, and clicking on one of our friendly yellow Donate buttons or clicking on the button that says, join our crew. If you join our crew, it's $6.95 a month. It automatically comes out of your account. And uh, six, and once we get to 1,000 listeners, we're a little, we're just about 400 listeners away from reaching our goal. Uh, once we get to 1,000 listeners, then on a monthly basis, we'll be able to pay all of our bills. That's kind of important because... Uh, in the long run, if we want to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you as well as to others, we need to reach that goal. Now, thankfully, the Lord has seen fit to make sure that even without a thousand listeners, that uh, that others of you have uh, generously contributed to us above and beyond the $6.95. And if you would like to do that, you can click on the donate button and fill in the amount that you would like to send in as your gift to Fighting for the Faith. And... Um, and, of course, if you'd like to do it the traditional way, you could do so by clicking, uh, not clicking, but making your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and sending it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. All right, what'd you think? Would love to get your feedback uh, feedback on any segment that we did on today's edition of Fighting for the Faith. You can email me. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. 
or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. That's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter, my name there, Pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and the mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen.